Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, it must be said, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Chris Bainton. Chris is a director of VetCell, the longest established veterinary buying group headquartered in Fife, Scotland. Chris, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much, Chris, for taking the time to come onto the air and speak with us. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. It's an interesting question. Um, Leadership, I think, is um, always going to be um, a matter of who would follow rather than um, uh, determining that you would lead. Um, I, I think it was was Teleran, was it not, that um, indicated an interest in uh, finding where his people were going so that he might lead them? My view has always been that people who have a penchant for leading, um, whether they have um, whether they have the, the strength of character um, to do it well um, is kind of secondary. If if they um, if they lead, they they tend to have followers, and of course, if if they lead in a direction that isn't particularly positive, then that would work against us. And you can think of many leaders in history who have been. Um, persuasive in a particular direction that's not been particularly positive. So obviously for me, leadership um, has been a case of identifying those people who would take us in a direction or would take me in a direction that I was comfortable to go. I was was very lucky that uh, in my career I met a good number of people who were positive leaders, positive influences to me. Um, and, um, and and I suspect that uh, I've had a big influence on my life and, and the direction that it's taken. Mm. I understand um, as well, Chris, that you did have a career in um, Her Majesty's Forces prior to, of course, entering the business world, um, firstly with the veterinary drug company in York and then going on to become the managing director of VetCell before you did step down from that role last year. Um, did you find that there were some elements of leadership from your time in the forces that you were able to take with you into the business world when oh, you made that transition? Without a doubt. Um, certainly, uh, my military career um, first introduced me to the concept of leadership. Mm. Um, the idea that one um, is a born leader, I think, is, is, is probably a misnomer unless you're an exceptional character. Um, I think you need to be molded um, and the forces certainly did that um, uh, yeah uh, without a doubt um, my view of leadership probably comes more from my military career than from any other and when we talk about leaders going on a journey and being molded as opposed to being born with certain characteristics um, is it just experience which you think is one of the great teachers in molding the best leaders 
Yeah, I would say experience is, is, is one of the bedrocks of, of leadership. Um, but obviously experience can be positive or negative. Um, but it need not necessarily be detrimental to the growth of a leader. You can be, um, you can pass through um, difficult times um, and learn positive aspects from that. Um, in my case, I would suggest that prior to COVID-19, mm. uh, the most difficult aspect of my leadership career in business was the foot and mouth crisis. Um, because that had a massive impact on our business and mm. on the way we we, we functioned, um, and it was necessary to make decisions um, in fairly short order that were that, that had a massive impact on on the way the business was run. And um, yeah, I, I think being able to make decisions under pressure and to make sure that those uh, decisions are carried forward and monitored for their desired desired effect. I think is is probably a, an integral part of, of leadership. It's in, it is integral for certain. I'm having to make those decisions, and it's one of those elements of leadership that maybe people tend to forget about. There's an awful lot of pressure that comes with the, those decisions. Um, yes, Chris. Yeah. No, sorry. I was, I was just going to say I couldn't agree with you more. For sure, for sure. And um, I think when we talk about, of course, um, leaders going on that journey as well, of course, we talk about experience uh, being important. Do you think it's really possible to develop without going through times of adversity? Um, like you mentioned, of course, the, uh, the foot and mouth crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment. Do you think experience of dealing with times of adversity like that tends to breed resilience in one and helps them develop in a positive way? I'm certain that's the case, but I suspect if you asked any manager, they'd prefer not to be to- so tested. Mm. I would suspect that as well, because albeit, I think it's sort of enjoyable in a way having to make certain decisions to a degree, but when you're tested to that sort of degree where you're flung so far out of your comfort zone, and I can imagine that that's a little bit more of a challenge that maybe is uh, best avoided. But I think coming through it, it will sort of make uh, people um, just that little bit more ready for the future in the uh, the long run and really have helped in their development, would you say? Well, th- th- that's certainly true. I, I think what, what tempers my view of it is that there, there are casualties. And mm. in adversity, um, I will tell you that in foot and mouth, my, I actually made my own daughter redundant. And um, that was, yeah, a, a singular moment. Um, you're not looking to make good people redundant because you lose those skills and you know that you will emerge um, from the crisis um, in some form or other and you're hopeful that you will have access to the skills that you had going in, but it's not always the case. I think this this um, scheme that the, the government has launched um, where we furlough employees rather than lose them has been an absolute godsend to us. 
It's certainly been um, one of the hallmarks of the uh, the government's approach. And there've been a few different uh, responses to the way that they've, of course, led the country through the uh, the crisis as well. And that kind of leads us to another facet of leadership, isn't it? The fact that the buck does ultimately stop with you, even if we're in unprecedented times. And you are very much in line for criticism as a result of the decisions that you uh, make as well. And that's very obvious at the moment. Oh, without a doubt. Um, I don't envy the government their position at this moment in time at all. I I suspect it's a no-win scenario. Um, At no stage can I see anybody emerging from this crisis with uh, anything other than criticism, simply for the fact that there are plenty of issues out there and um, blame has a way of being shared. It's terribly unfortunate um, that we find ourselves in the position that we do, uh, especially looking at the number of deaths that there have been. Um, I suppose one would have to say that um, it's 2020 vision hindsight, and uh, I'm sure everyone can criticise, and I'll probably criticise along with the rest. Um, But it's a different matter when the book stops with you um, and that was a Trumanism. Um, if, if the book stops with you, then it's difficult when it's a scenario that's never been visited upon us before. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I do feel for them, I have to be honest. For certain, because you would, of course, imagine that every decision they make is made in good faith based upon advice at the time. And as we said there, hindsight is a very wonderful thing. And what I can pick out from um, criticisms of the uh, the government's approach, Chris, is um, the timing of, of course, the lockdown measures, very well publicised at the moment. Um, the Italians, of course, in contrast, went into lockdown very early in March, I think as perhaps as early as the 9th, whereas the lockdown in the UK, of course, didn't happen until the 23rd of March, quite some time later. If we take that sort of proactive and reactive away from politics for a moment and away from times of crisis, as a business leader, would you say that you tend to be more proactive when dealing with difficulties and dive in, get on top of it straight away as soon as possible? Or do you like to take a back seat and see how matters develop before then taking action? Depends very much on the crisis faced and the action taken. Um, I always like to say that I I start my Monday morning with decisions to make, and by Friday, I like to think that I've made more right decisions than wrong ones, and sometimes I've pulled it off. Um, Sadly, not always. Um, I think you have to temper any decision with the effect that the decision is going to have. If it's a a, a minor decision um, that really doesn't matter um, to any great extent whether you're right or wrong, you can make it as often as you like and as quickly as you like and without a lot of thought. But as you move up the scale of of decision-making, you end up with a situation where um, a decision has to be made on the hoof, if you like, under pressure and with um, with alacrity. And uh, that, I guess, is when you start to find out what sort of a, a leader you are. Um, I tend to think that if it presents itself as a major issue, 
which COVID-19 did, then I responded pretty well in anticipation of the lockdown. We would all we had already prepared ourselves for remote working, um, and uh, the the um, the effects of actually putting it into place were actually quite minimal, um, and we moved fairly seamlessly. I'm not saying totally totally seamlessly, but fairly seamlessly into uh, a remote working environment, which is where we still are today. Um, because in, in Scotland, we haven't yet relaxed the rules, so we're still all working from home um, with four members of staff furloughed. Mm, it certainly seems um, as if the business has approached um, the um, the crisis as um, well as it possibly can. And Have you found yourself having to adapt your own leadership approach during uh, this time, Chris? Because I can imagine there have had to be some quite difficult discussions are sometimes had with people and you've almost had to essentially manage people within the group in different ways depending upon their personality because some at this time I can imagine will have wanted maybe a little bit of reassurance about what's going on maybe an idea of what the future holds whereas others would be more inclined to essentially just get their head down and get on with it. I I think everybody seeks reassurance in a time when we just don't know the answers Um, and I guess so long as as a leader, I don't pretend to know things I don't. Um, I can offer reassurance insofar as I've told my staff that we will continue to pay them their full salary so that their mortgages are, are, are covered and, and that they're not under pressure financially. And I've told them that we will keep that going until October at the latest. We will... Um, We'll review it then, sorry, at the earliest, we'll review it then. Um, but I, I have no intention of, of laying everybody off, anybody off, because of the scenario that the government's offered us. It's given us the perfect solution of it. It's given us the ability to make the perfect solution out of their offering, because we're able to retain the staff that we know we need. Um, and that's, that's the main thing, for, from my perspective. So I haven't had to have a a really difficult conversation this Mm. time around, as I did previously, uh, foot and mouth being an example. Mm. It's certainly good to hear that that hasn't necessarily had to be um, on the agenda this time around, Chris. And if we think about what the uh, the future might hold now before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, do you give me an idea of what you envision the next year holding for yourself and for Vetcell and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also beyond the current COVID-19 pandemic as well? Well, as, as a group of companies working together to support independent practice, our our focus has got to be to maintain um, our client base and and to support them through um, the trials and tribulations of COVID-19 and what the new normal will look like. Um, Now, that's proving challenging to Governments trying to get people back into the workplace, and it will prove challenging for some time to come, I suspect. Um, but I don't think that um, any challenge is insurmountable, so therefore there will be positives to come out of it. Um, I suspect there will be a growth of 
online sales, whether that's considered positive or negative, uh, I'll leave others to judge. But I think there will be a growth in that area. I think there will still be a need for people um, to see their, their veterinary surgeon with their animals and for their veterinary surgeon to attend their livestock production units uh, for obvious reasons, you know, for animal welfare. Um, our job is to be there to support those independent practices and uh, and hopefully we can continue to do a job, um, a good job for them. And, and that will be my aim anyway. And I know my staff are keen to to get back to to sort of a more working, normal working environment. Um, and we enjoy our interaction with our veterinary practices across mm. the country, and we would hope that they enjoy their interaction with us. Certainly, hope that they see it as a positive. I think it will be um, good when we start to see those relationships um, starting to blossom again when that contact can really start to uh, kick off once more. And what I think would also be fantastic for the uh, the listeners, uh, Chris, is if um, we could actually have you back on the programme at some point in the next year once we start to emerge from this situation, hopefully, and we can catch up on how, of course, the group is getting on on the one hand, but also how essentially uh, maybe the um, employees of Vetsell are getting on in adapting back to um, a normal working environment as well. But um, unfortunately, yeah. even though we are just about out of time today, um, I have to say it's um, been a thoroughly insightful experience having you on the uh, the programme with us, Chris, and also really enjoyable. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Totally my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, Chris. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to the programme for the, uh, the benefit of the listeners. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime as well. Thanks very much indeed. That was Chris Bainton, Director of VetCell. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to become one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can, 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up, and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think... It would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? These kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the 
furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our 
social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, 
the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.